0: Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya.
1: And I'm Alan, and this episode is about a podcast that I can't stop thinking about Nice Try Utopian.
0: Utopia does not exist.
1: Yeah, so um, Nice Try is a podcast that was hosted by Avery Truffleman and produced by Curbed, which is a division of Vox Media. Truffleman also hosts the fashion podcast, Articles of Interest, which is part of the 99 Invisible Project, and is currently hosting The Cut by Vox Media. And Nice Try ran for one season in uh 2019. Each of the 40 minute podcasts covers the history of a real life attempt to create the perfect place or society, and it examines why that never works.
0: It's really interesting to me that they like come out with a thesis pretty hard. From the very beginning of episode one, they are very clear that utopia does not exist, and that, like, that is the the thesis of this podcast. Um, And so, you know, each individual episode takes you on a really interesting journey, but I'm not sure if the season as a whole really takes you on a journey.
1: Hmm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I love that they're upfront about their perspective because they're not like, we're going to try and figure out if utopias are possible because, like, I don't really need that question answered because, like... (laughs) It's pretty obvious.
0: Yeah. I think it sits at, like, an interesting intersection of optimism and pessimism, where, mm-hmm. like, like utopia does not exist, but we are in a constant state of striving for it. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess, like, one of the big messages that kind of goes across episodes is that even though utopias don't ever really succeed, they are, like, really incredible experiments and, like, what is possible and reimagining and rethinking all of the things that most people consider a given or, right, like, assume are inherent parts of the human experience, um, that we don't have the ability to change. And utopias think, you know, like, okay, but what if we did change all of these things? Like, can we design a better world? You know, no world will ever be perfect because there is always conflict and struggle but i think we can make progress and fix past wrongs and like utopia's i think the show argues are a big part of that process and of doing that that like yeah. it takes it takes dreamers and you know someone or a group of people with like a real utopian vision to challenge some of the worst things about us
1: that's yeah that's why i love utopia's it's such a big Part of like my entire worldview. It's why I listen to podcasts like this. It's part of why I read so much science fiction and fantasy, because those are also they're kind of like alternate worlds where where, like you said, everything is kind of reframed and certain things are like, you know, metaphors or whatever in our existence are made literal. And then it kind of like throws you out of your worldview and you go, Oh, wait a minute. I've been assuming that this is a thing that we can do nothing about, but actually, like, we need to think about how much can we change that. And science fiction and and fantasy are really good at doing that uh, without, you know, spending millions of dollars building a giant uh, biodome thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, that's very true. uh, Sci-fi fantasy worlds are kind of like how to build a utopia, but without having to you know raise millions of dollars or like buy a plot of land in the middle of nowhere like a very low resource theoretical utopia um that then you know can really influence society i think almost as much as the real utopias end up doing um yeah we did kind of skip ahead of our normal structure sorry i just got very excited about utopias um do you want to talk about your first experience listening to the podcast
1: yeah. Um, so like I said, I I am very interested in utopias. Um, it's part of like the impulse of the what made me want to write, which has been like the major driving force of like everything that I've ever studied. As a concept, it's just something I'm interested in. And there's lots of podcasts about that. And so I listen to them and I'm constantly looking for new ones. And this one came out a couple of years ago. And I think it's the most professionally produced and researched one I've ever listened to, like they're each episode, like I said, is about forty minutes, and it's a nice little journey and At the end, it feels like, "Oh wow, I learned so much and time flew and i like the reason I'm interested in it so much, and I think it's so powerful is because Utopia kind of unconsciously sits at the core of the Western perspective, and I think it's the key to what's best and worst about our culture and we kind of talked about that a little bit um but i think that an awareness and like deconstruction of it are as vital as our examinations of patriarchy and white supremacy and it it reveals a lot like in terms of the propriety that obscures patriarchy and white supremacy in our history it would be like well we're doing these things to make a better world you know we're just we're we're better suited to be in charge uh, and and stuff like that you know cuz we're just trying to make everything perfect if you guys would just do it with us you know and it's gross but it, yeah. it's like it's, it's uh, you know, you go all the way back to like Plato's Republic of like, we're gonna build the perfect world. And Plato's whole core conceit is like, and to do that, we need to lie to everyone and make up a fake religion where they all believe in it. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, so I think that like utopian thinking is essential to our political perspective. Kind of like you said, it like shakes up the structures that we're building. To kind of Mm -hmm. think about like how, what are our assumptions and all this kind of stuff. Um, But you have to conceive of it as like an unattainable ideal. It has to be like way out there on the horizon. And you have to constantly re-examine what your assumptions are about what utopia is. um, Because it's going to have things in it like patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, stuff like that. So that's what I found really compelling about the podcast because it managed to hold both of those perspectives. The unattainable utopia is not possible, um, but also like what we should be thinking about utopia and trying for it because it yields a lot of great benefits. Uh, And it's it's also like really entertaining and and polished. So I just love the podcast.
0: Yeah. I can't remember which episode it was, but in one of the episodes... Avery talks a lot about like who is allowed to dream up and make the rules for utopia and you know conjecturing what if uh you know this u- vision of utopia was basically conceived of and you know executed by white men and like what if there had been other voices at the table coming up with the vision you know, what if more women, more people of color had been involved in deciding what the utopia would look like? Mm -hmm. And I guess another point to go along with that is that, you know, not only do the biases of the people coming up with the vision of utopia influence what they decide is, you know, ideal and perfect, but also, like, they can use... The concept of utopia to shut up and, you know, downplay their critics, Mm -hmm. right? Like, the problem is just that you haven't bought into the vision. If, you know, you're unhappy because you're fighting it. If you would just accept this vision of what is, you know, could be a perfect world, then it actually would be a perfect world. Which is, of course, bullshit. (laughs)
1: right just stop being unhappy just just have the same values that i have uh and everything will be perfect Uh, it comes after those different ideas in different episodes about like white supremacy there's one that is about you know uh, india trying to like remake itself into a modern state at the turn of the 20th century there's another one about integrated neighborhoods on the east coast you know, black folks and white folks living together in the suburbs and making that deliberately happen, you know, on their face, they're anti-racist projects. And then like they become very racist. Their intentions get inverted by the project itself. Uh, And that seems to happen with all of the utopian projects over and over. Like the deeper you get into the project, the more it like unravels the original point of whatever it was that you were doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess my experience of listening to the podcast um, was that you had picked out one episode in particular for me to listen to um, because I kind of had like a more sciencey angle to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I listened to that one and I enjoyed it. And, and you also suggested a few more that were really good. And by the time I had listened to three episodes, I was like, OK, I just need to listen to this whole podcast. So I basically <laughs> I mean, there's only what like eight or nine episodes, and they're, you know, mostly, like, 40 minutes long. Um, so it's not a, an incredible thing to have to get to, but I definitely listened to all of the episodes in, like, a two-day period and really, really enjoyed it.
1: That's good. That's great.
0: I also really appreciated that the two different uh, types of ads that I got served mostly for the podcast, one was for Brita. Um, And the ad was all about like how plastic bottles are destroying the earth and how, you know, if you buy a Brita filter, you can totally decrease your single-use plastic usage, which felt very utopian, well, like dystopian and utopian. (laughs) And then the other one was for uh, a contract-free cell phone service. (laughs) <laughs> Where it you know it was like imagine your cell phone bill with no contracts, just like a really easy to parse list of charges or whatever, and that also felt kind of like weirdly really utopian. So um, the ads, I think, were well placed. <laughs> That's
1: funny because I think my ads. I just recently re the whole thing for the show, and they were like. From the Department of Transportation, like, don't look away from the road to listen to your podcast. Uh, (laughs) So it was very authoritarian because they got like a a grant from the DOT or something. I want to take a second and talk real quick about the etymology of the actual word utopia. And so utopia was spelled with a U in the beginning. And uh, that comes from Greek, and it means, like, no uh, as a prefix or, like, not. And then topia is, uh, like, topos in the Greek, which just means place. So it literally means, like, no place. But also the prefix you sounds like it's a homonym for another Greek prefix, which would be, like, eu. And, you know, it sounds exactly the same, eu, which means good or Perfect. And so it sounds like the perfect place, but it's written as no place.
0: Oh, yeah. I think I, I mean, I definitely got the dual meaning of it, but I didn't quite follow the exact etymology.
1: Yeah, because like the original use of this word was cooked up by a guy named Sir Thomas More who is an Englishman and he wrote the book utopia, which is not like a novel or anything. It reads like a travel log. Um, it's fictional of course, where he is like, I stumbled upon a place that is called utopia because it's perfect, but I can't tell you where it is because it's nowhere. And then it like, he describes like their perfect government and religion, which is like all about colonialism and racism and slavery, uh, and oh, great. how great it is in christianity yeah <laughs> oh, like, what
0: what era was this published in
1: 1500s early 1500s okay um, so it's basically like the whole colonialist project is envisioned you know um because they just found america and stuff and he's like wouldn't it be awesome if we just had a huge place where we could like just go do our bullshit and uh Yeah, so that's what utopia is. That's where the word comes from, is from that book. And that's kind of the double meaning that's loaded into it. That's why I said, like, utopia sits at the heart of, like, the Western imagination. All of our projects are utopian. Like, I think science is utopian, the way Francis Bacon framed it in the Enlightenment. He's like, it's just an ascending, you know, progressive accumulation of knowledge that always checks itself and, you know, just builds towards a better human understanding of the natural world and will make everything better always. And it's like, yeah, we get the atomic bomb and we get, you know, global warming, (laughs) you know, um, there's just no downsides, you know, you know, framed in that way. Like the one that I wanted you to listen to and kind of kick off the discussion, was the Biosphere 2 project, because I felt like it was a good um, version of kind of what we do as, uh, you know, it's a bunch of English majors who go off to do science in a really <laughs> ill-informed way.
0: Yeah. And uh, and just to be clear for people who haven't listened to the podcast, um, Biosphere 2 was actually the first Biosphere of its kind. Um, but Biosphere 1 is just the planet Earth. So they kind of <laughs> right. named it in a slightly cheeky way. Um, and not just English majors, theater majors. Like, a lot of them were, like, Mostly, yeah from, yeah, poked from their involvement in community theater. Yeah. No, it's crazy. So they, they locked them, they, like, built what was supposed to be a self-sustaining biosphere and locked themselves in it for two years, basically, um, and they had to grow all of their own food, which was really hard. There're eight of them, and so they basically were spending all of their time farming, and still didn't weren't consuming enough calories, and were running out of, you know, food. And eventually, they also started running out of oxygen. Right. And they ended up opening the the biosphere to let more oxygen in at one point, so they like literally wouldn't die. Um, and so, and so even though they were super miserable, they managed to, and they like kind of bent some of the rules, they managed to last for two full years, um, which was kind of incredible.
1: Yeah. And it was like, they, they claimed all of these, like, we're going to do science experiments, but they didn't have anybody in the crew. Like you said, they were theater majors and English majors. The leader of this whole thing was a guy named, uh, John Allen, who's like this, Generalist, you know, is like knows a lot of stuff about different things, but isn't an expert in any of them. He's not an academic. He's just like a charismatic guy. He managed to get funding from like a oil tycoon billionaire in uh, in Texas named Ed Bass, and they built this giant thing that had like deserts in it and rainforests, and and they were like, "This will, you know, as an experiment, we're gonna see if we could like go into outer space, right?" Or something like that. Like, what do you think of this as an experiment, like a scientific endeavor?
0: Yeah, it's not the best. I mean, it certainly is not an experiment, right? And they mentioned that that there are no controls. There's not really a question other than can we do it? Um, right. I mean, obviously, there are a ton of things that they probably should have done differently if they were really just trying to say, like, can we build, like, a self-sustaining microcosm for two years? Um, I mean, like, first of all, don't put a desert in there. Like, deserts aren't that productive. I know. That's I like... That,
1: that one was like, so crazy. Yeah.
0: If you're trying to make a self-sustaining bubble, like, desert is not the way to go. <laughs> um. And also, it seemed like they were, like, mostly eating sweet potatoes, which I guess is, like, an okay mono diet, but, like... And they had citrus trees, so they didn't get scurvy. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I would have just come at the nutrition angle, like, very differently. Did It seemed like they didn't really have livestock.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Like, the way that they decided what animals to bring in were, like... Uh, well, okay, yeah, they didn't bring in pollinators,
1: Mm -hmm. So they had to do
0: all of their own pollinating. Mm -hmm. And, like, how hard would it have been to just, like, put a hive of bees in there? Although I guess, like, maybe bees didn't pollinate the things that they had that needed to be pollinated. But, like, I feel like if they were doing it now, they definitely would have been some kind of, like, insect eating. Eating crickets is not traditional in Western cultures, But it is, like, a very good source of protein and calories that's, like, very easy to make and process. Easy to grow. You're not having to, like, slaughter animals all the time. You know, it's just, like, small space, uh, very efficient energy conversion. So, like, I feel like eating crickets would have improved their um the outcome a lot at least like nutritionally they all lost like a ton of weight and came out as like emaciated compared to how they had gone in
1: well it's funny because this guy John Allen like has this whole concept of how like the world should work you know society should be like different and we kind of impose ourselves on nature and we should work with nature. And he's like, and to prove that I'm right, we'll do this biosphere thing and live according to the way that I think we should do. And that will prove that we should change all of society to do things the way that I think we should. And I'm like, that's not science. That's not what science is.
0: That's definitely not science. I mean, they (laughs) found out some scientific things while they were doing it. It was like a very, a rushed job at the end. The concrete wasn't cured fully. And it actually helped absorb carbon dioxide and oh, made right. it yeah. a little bit better than it could have been. Yeah. And I guess they're using it for scientific. I mean, they're using the physical structure for scientific research now, although yeah. it's it's not closed off like they do let in oxygen and stuff.
1: Um, <laughs> right. One of the things that I knew about it before I listened to the podcast was that it helped to prove one of the ideas of like um, the way that trees grow is like. Like the trees fell apart. I don't think they talk about this in the podcast um, because like there was never any wind blowing on them. And so the trees like were like, oh, I don't need to build these internal structures, you know, because there's no wind blowing on me that uh, helped to make the wood stronger. And so it just grew, grew, grew. And then it got so heavy that they like snapped in half. And so like Whoa. <laughs> some of their yeah. food sources just it, like <laughs> went up because they just like the trees collapsed because they didn't have a uh, wind because they evolved to need it so it was just like a big mess and it's just like the kind of perfect picture of these utopian projects in a microcosm and you know that's like explored in each episode in different terms but i thought this one was interesting because it's like this kind of weird hubris of um like american idealism of like the Western paternalism of they, before they do this, they like travel all over the world. John Allen does and, and his followers to like, you know, they stop in like uh, Southeast Asia and they're like, how do you, how do you primitives farm, you know, oh, and God, we will yeah. learn your ways and then we will perfect them with our Western knowledge, you know, and then go back to like an oil billionaire who, um, funds all their crazy ideas to you know ostensibly to like make a perfect society that doesn't pollute that is more ecologically sound and sustainable. like those are all good things, right? But like the way and the assumptions that are going into it and the kind of distrust of the institution of science and and things like that um, but the but the deep trust in capitalism, Uh, you know, in terms of this billionaire. um, It's just like, it's just all of that. I'm just like, ugh, perfect, perfect.
0: Yeah. You know, so they talked about how they were going off of Gaia theory, Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, the idea of the earth as like the super organism and the idea that nature is perfect and we are what's wrong. Right. And if we just left nature alone then nature would be fine. They're almost right. Like, I think they're just missing the broader perspective that, like, nature works the way it does in a seemingly, like, perfect interconnected network of different actors because that's how evolution works. Right. (laughs) And, like, nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors an empty niche. Like, if you look at any relatively undisturbed ecosystem, it seems like this amazingly complex, perfectly designed network of stuff. And it's like, yeah, but it took millions of years to get that way. I think they went into the biodome kind of just thinking like, oh, well, nature is perfect. Nature will take care of it all. It doesn't work that way because, you know, they were, like, making a list of all of the species they wanted to take in there with them. And, like, that's not millions of years of evolution filling all the niches and reaching some sort of steady state, sustainable equilibrium. Like, that is in no way close (laughs) to that. Um, And so, like, of course you're going to struggle to maintain this, like, very artificial ideal state that like is not its own equilibrium and it's not something that nature created and i also even want to push back a little bit on something that i just said about evolution creating these like perfect quote unquote systems at equilibrium and you know just to say that like it might look like it's an equilibrium now almost nothing is ever at equilibrium in terms of evolutionary timescales. And I think, again, there is even this perspective among scientists during the 20th century that, like... So Stephen Jay Gould, I think, called it, like, a Panglossian outlook, where it's, like, we... So from Candide by Voltaire, Mm -hmm. um, Pangloss is the character that's, like, we live in the best of all possible worlds... Um, (laughs) If something exists, it's because God willed it and that's the way it's supposed to be and it's perfect. Mm. And evolutionary biologists have sometimes looked at nature in that way that like, oh, well, because it evolved, it must have evolved for a reason and it must be perfect in like an atheistic way instead of a theistic way, kind of just Mm. like replacing God with evolution and, like, that's not even necessarily true either. Like, there's right. a lot of stuff that evolution does that's, like, just random and, like, maybe not the best of all possible worlds.
1: Yeah, like, if you were engineering a polar bear, you would probably not give it such a heavy coat. But that heavy coat is necessary because of the way that the hairs on the the animal are, like, all hollow and and helps to insulate it. And so... Spends a lot of calories lugging that thing around but it's so useful that it's worth it. And so like mm-hmm. you could rejigger that thing to make it better. But uh, nature doesn't care about that stuff. Like if things come along for the ride, as long as it can reproduce itself, who cares? That's, that's yeah. how the system works. That's a weird example I just gave, um, but you—you <laughs> you remind. I all I just stole that from another podcast that I listened to. That was also about the idea of biological teleologies, which you were just talking about. So
0: yeah, um. uh, ding, ding, ding! Yay, teleology! Yay. We hit one of our <laughs> our mes- measures of truth buzzwords. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, yeah, like, nature is not scripted. There's not, like, roles to fill. Like, now we need to make the pollinators. Like, pollinators just happened because of, like, a lot of other factors, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you liked the episode. I don't want to take all the time to talk about it. I know there were other ones that you were interested in. Uh, But, yeah, it's not a great scientific experiment or model, I think. I think it's still kind of worth doing. I'm glad that they did it. It's just so damn weird. And like perfectly utopian Americanism, just all the bad and the good right there.
0: So like one of the things that I talk about in terms of the way that my science works, right, is that it's kind of like uh, iterations back and forth between observations and experiments and then back to observations. So like the Biosphere too expedition was not a good experiment but it led to a lot of interesting observations that then you could design well-controlled experiments to deal with Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah i don't think it was useless in any sense but it was definitely like not an experiment in the scientific way that that word is used even if it was definitely a social experiment. And what was, oh, God, what was the name of that rule that they talked about where it was, like, 75% of the way through any stressful mission, like...
1: Oh, the three-quarters rule. The three-quarters
0: yeah. rule? <laughs> yeah. Like, no matter how hard you try, like, people break into factions and, and like, shit just gets real weird
1: Yeah, so, like, three quarters of the way through the mission, people are like, I'm I'm done with this. Like, I can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because they know that there's a time limit, and they're getting so close, and they're like, ah, like, it's not worth it. Get me out of here. Which, to me, when I heard that, I was like, oh, then just tell people that it takes one quarter more to get to Mars. So by the time you're hitting the third quarter, we're here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That probably wouldn't work.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, I wanted to talk about a, a few other episodes. Um, I think my second favorite episode was the one about the Oneida colony. Or, yeah. I don't know if colony is the right word. Um, it's like community. a commune. Yeah. Yeah. That had like really progressive sex and gender roles. And this was in like the late 19th century or. Yeah.
1: No, that's late,
0: right. Late 19th century, early 20th century. Yeah. And it lasted for 30 years. It was started by a religious fanatic who had, like, very traditional ideas about sexuality and then kind of just through life experience started to kind of unwind some of that stuff. So basically, like, he and his wife, they, like, admitted that they were attracted to this other couple and then the four of them all kind of got together and all of the, like, heterosexual pairings And they basically (laughs) just decided that, like, this feels right. Like, we're not hurting anybody. I think God would be chill with this. Mm -hmm. And kind of, like, Mm -hmm. rewrote their own religion in, like, a very sex-positive, progressive way. And it, like, it started out, like, really idealist. But then it kind of, like, got too big to be sustainable, almost. (laughs) Right. You mean
1: when there is 84 people in this marriage, you mean? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Because, like, I guess they kind of got the idea that, like, a marriage could be bigger than one man, one woman. But there was still the idea that, like, if you were in the marriage, like, everybody was with everybody, which Mm -hmm. is just, like, way too complicated.
1: Yeah, for four people. And then they, like, expand. They just keep adding more couples and it gets wild.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I feel like it is sustainable with four mm. with four people. You know, like lo- tons of people do. Oh, sure,
1: but it's not that... uncomplicated. You yeah.
0: Know? No. 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 It does like the the complication <laughs> exponentially increases with the number of yeah. people involved. <laughs> right. And that's and that's like even when you're not assuming that every single other person is also in a serious relationship with every other person.
1: Mm-hmm. Um.
0: I also thought it was really interesting the way that they they extended that kind of, like, non-possessive attitude in romantic relationships to the relationships between parents and children, which is, like, pretty fucked up. Mm. Because, like, children need security and, like, that feeling of being loved, and they were basically discouraging parents from expressions of love towards the children
1: their particular children
0: yeah yeah yeah, like their own children Mm -hmm. um because they were kind of like mapping their theories for how like men and women should relate to each other sexually and romantically onto the way that parents relate to children which is just like a completely different type of relationship
1: Well, I think they were, like, blowing out the idea of family to this, like, macro picture. So they were like, everyone is your mom. Like, all the women are your mom. All the men are your father. So, like, we all love you equally because you're all our children, um, basically, was, was the idea. But, of course... You're going to um, just kind of naturally, probably, especially if you're raised in the Western tradition, favor your uh, your own children. It's funny that you say that about like the children need this or that, Um, that like that whole thing. There's so many things about Oneida that like hit on other ideologies like Plato in in the Republic. This is how he says you should raise children uh, in the Republic. Like nobody is your father. Nobody is your mother. Everyone is your father. Everyone is your mother. Um, So that you're loyal to the community. That's where your loyalty should lie, not to this family or that family. um, So that the best leaders arise for everyone and not like certain families have dynasties. um, Is to disrupt like, you know, like uh, paternalism and stuff like that. Um, But Mm -hmm. I but there is um, a whole thing. About 200 years before this or yeah, about 200 years before this of like Westerners encountering uh, the native people of the Americas and talking to them like, um, you know, like, why are you spending so much time with this boy who uh, isn't your son? This is a particular conversation I'm remembering between uh, I can't I wish I could cite this, Um, but it's a Westerner, I think a German Asking this of like a, a Native American. He's like, is not he's not your kid, you know, you're not his father. Like they had an understanding of the paternalism. And the the American uh native is like so confused by this. He's like, why would I need to be someone's particular father to love a child? Like he's part of my tribe. Like, of course, I'm going to teach him everything that I know. And, like, make sure that he's a good moral person because he's, like, a part of our group. And the, and the Germans like, well, it's a waste of energy. I don't know why you would do it. Like, you're just helping someone else's family. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's like, you should have nuclear families because, obviously, that's the way that human beings are. And this native person is like, that's not how human beings are. They're like this. And the, these two, like, different ways of thinking about human nature... Like, neither of those are Mm -hmm. essentially true. They're kind of culturally constructed truths. I I think you're right in terms of, like, if you're raised in America, you do need that because that's the way our culture is constructed. I don't know if it's naturally essential necessarily. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. This episode, I think, does a really good job of exploring that idea of utopia as, like, visionary in a good way, right? Where they're kind of thinking about what is possible, like, how are different ways that we can think about sex and gender roles? And, you know, ultimately, a lot of what they did ended up being validated, right? Like, they had a super egalitarian society where... Men and women were equal and had equal power and equal rights. Monogamy wasn't expected, you know, as long as everyone was consenting and agreed, you know, like, people could be with different people. And, like, especially the gender equality thing has been enacted slowly throughout the 20th century, and now I think, you know, non-monogamy is becoming more accepted you know, more widely practiced, or at least openly practiced. You know, I think the world is, like, finally ready for a lot of these ideas that they had, you know, maybe doing them in a slightly better, less fucked up way than they were trying to. I, I think it's interesting the way that they completely reimagine sex and gender roles, but not the idea of gender itself, Um, And it just made me think a lot about the current struggle for trans rights that's happening, you know, like, all over the world and particularly in the U.S. and the U.K. right now. It does seem like there are, like, two fundamentally different views of utopia and, like, what utopia looks like and what our society should be like. On the one side, there's men and there's women this is a boundary that you cannot cross like our society will fall apart if we don't have these like very rigid ideas of this is just like how it is and then on the other side you have people like but like what does gender really mean like what if what if and hear me out (laughs) what if people could just be whatever they wanted to be and like act however they wanted to act without these like weird preconceived notions of, like, what is appropriate or not to do based on your genitals. Like, what (laughs) if? (laughs) Going back to what we said about, like, sci-fi fantasy being really important arenas for utopian visions. You know, in the past couple decades, sci-fi fantasy fiction has been where a lot of these idea of gender has worked out. You know, like, what would it be like to be in a society where, like, everyone used gender-neutral pronouns? Mm -hmm. You just, like, didn't make assumptions about people's genitals based on what they looked like when you met them, you know?
1: Yeah, there's like a great series by the writer Ada Palmer, who is um, a PhD historian at the University of Chicago, her Terra Ignota series, that is exactly that. It's like set 200 years in the future, and it is rude to talk to anybody with anything other than they, them pronouns in that future, unless you know them. You know, like when you meet someone, you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, happy to meet you. Did you know about them? Did you know they, did you know, you know, like that. And if you, and those pronouns are have nothing to do with, you know, your sex organs, they end up having to do not only with like how you self identify, but also like the way that like your attitude about life, like, are you more passive? Are you more aggressive? Like gender has like a totally different way of, um, interacting with the society and signaling different things about your like personal philosophical attitude. And then also in that series, Mm. there's like all the nations are borderless. Uh, And so like, if you're an American, that's because you self affiliate as an American or if you're Spanish and these are built around ideological ways of uh, living your life and not so much around like territorial localities. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: Yeah. like she gets rid of all the things that, seem like they're a big problem for us right now. And then what you discover is there's all kinds of other shit that is a big problem when you take that stuff away. So by presenting us with what would look like a utopia to us, what you find out is like, oh, actually, still lots of problems. Yeah, she's so smart. But I totally agree.
0: Maybe we'll have to do an episode on that next.
1: Yeah. Those books are really long. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I can get you to read them.
0: Um, another episode that I really liked was the one about Herland, like lesbian separatism in general.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Herland is a novel, just to be clear.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in the novel, which is like pretty old, I'm trying to remember.
1: That's also like early 20th century. Yeah, there was like a whole time in the same period as Oneida, like the late 1800s, early 1900s. That was like people wrote utopias. Lots of people wrote utopias. And then you started to get dystopias written for the first time uh, where people were like, actually, you know, one person's utopia is another person's nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, But her land is is uh, pretty unique.
0: One of the things that I loved about it, like the quote that Avery read was about how like all of the women's clothing had amazing pockets And it's just it's just like a whole paragraph about like how functional and wonderful their pockets are. And I was like, oh, my God, nothing has changed in 100 years. (laughs)
1: It's gotten worse. Yeah. Well, because the the conceit of the novel is that it's a secreted island somewhere where the women have um, somehow they can regenerate their population without men. And so there's only women who live on this island.
0: Yeah, so, like, Wonder Woman's origin story is, like, based um, pretty heavily on this novel. So I'm bisexual woman in my 30s. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, generational splits within culture in general. But, like, spe- some specific generational splits within the gay community. Lesbian separatism was a big movement in, like, the 70s and 80s and stuff. In a way where it's not now, because people in my generation, and especially younger, are, like, much more into, like, the fluidity of gender and sexuality. On the one hand, I totally understand. I mean, I can't say I totally understand, but I, like, sympathize with the idea that growing up as a lesbian in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right, like, feeling the pressure of patriarchy in a really intense way and like needing to feel like you have to make that distance. I appreciate the concept of lesbian separatism, even though it's not something that I would ever want to participate in because it is that like extreme utopian vision of like, what if we could build a world without men? Like, what would that look like? You know, I think there's a reason that so much of that like second wave feminist movement was led by lesbians right (laughs) because they're like we don't fucking need men you know like (laughs) whereas like for for like straight or bisexual people it's like it's harder for us to imagine a world without men because we like men we're attracted to men and i think there's like ways to just fall into patriarchal modes of being without even noticing that that's what's happening they talk about how one of the lesbian separatist communities that they talk to is kind of, like, dying because most of the people are, you know, in their 70s and, you know, not getting replaced because it's not something that, like, younger lesbians are really into.
1: Yeah, like, I think the querying of you know, authority structures and stuff kind of necessitates like, well, if we are women and we want to do it differently, how will we do it differently, you know, from top to bottom, Mm -hmm. sexual relationships, you know, organizations, and they try all kinds of radical stuff that they talk about where they have like 100% consensus on things. And it's like, this is bullshit. Like it takes (laughs) way too long to get everybody on board with anything and nothing gets done. The queering of Culture continues, I think queerness is kind of queered itself, is what ended up happening. It uh, questioned all of these systems of authority, and so you had the separatism, but now it's like questioned that questioning, and now it's like breaking down even more. Where, like, well, you say that you allow women to this community, but all of your women are required to have uteruses. You know, they ha- had to be yeah. born with their sexual organs. And, and and to those lesbians, they're like, well, of course. And it's like, well, not of course, because that's not what womanhood is. That label has been queered even further. and And probably the same thing is going to happen. You know, things that are unthinkable to our generation, you know, 35, you know, 40 years down the line are going to be like, well, you're a bigot. For because you can't imagine this. And it'd be like, well, that's so outside of my norms. I can't uh, even understand it. Um, and mm-hmm. then, like, I look forward to that, honestly. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: I would like to be the worst person I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly.
0: The other thing that I really liked from that episode was the idea of a heterotopia,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is, um, again, like,
1: when a man loves a woman <laughs> no. no
0: it's like um it's like a more flexible vision of utopia that it is a pluralist utopia rather than a utopia where everyone buys into the one single vision and like executes it flawlessly it's like a utopia with a built this built-in idea that people are going to disagree and that like that difference will be accepted and celebrated and kind of worked with. If I interpreted it correctly, I don't know.
1: A space of spaces, kind of. Yeah. She says in the podcast, this term comes from the philosopher Michel Foucault uh, or Michel Foucault, who is it's not like Michel. It's like a, a man, uh, Mitchell. Um, so I just want to make sure people Understand that I'm he's I'm French. not saying he's it French is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Isn't so, it, it's isn't it Michael?
1: Sure. Okay. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um so to go back to the etymology, right? Hetero just means like other and topia is just place, right? This is kind of setting aside the notion of perfection for Foucault. Um, when he's talking about heterotopias what he is talking about in his philosophy usually is like we live in society. So that is like the macro space. That is the whole space that contains the other spaces. And then these heterotopias are like microcosms that everybody in the society knows about, but are peripheral. And so like a heterotopia for Foucault would be like a hospital. So like, we don't want, to see sickness, right, in our society. So we push that sickness to the margins and we have a sickness space and that's what that space is for so we don't have to deal with it as a society. We don't keep sickness among us. The same thing for like disability. Like you you live in a special place that is built for disabled people that is not in our space, the macro space of everyone else.
0: Okay, well, when you explain it that way, it seems bad, <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, that's what Foucault is pointing out that these, that we use these spaces to like marginalize people. Because of this utopian impulse, we want to like purify. That's, we have a purification principle in our society, which means to like get rid of whatever is like dysfunctional according to the definitions of, you know, perfection it It really is what these lesbians did, though, right? Because they like they were like, we're gonna create a separate space where we are. And in a way, if you're trying to like reach social equality or like to queer Western culture, you can't do that by leaving. You know what I mean? Like you, mm-hmm. you have to you have to be here. You have to participate. You can't drop out and then and then be like, yeah, you, you guys have your patriarchy. We're going to go create utopia um, because all you've done is segregated yourself into, You you stopped participating. You stopped, you stopped.
0: Like, I get what you're saying, but I also feel like there is something to be said for like taking yourself out of a situation that is hurting you to some extent, right? Like, I don't blame all the like gay men who moved to San Francisco in the like 70s you know,
1: of course right. um,
0: there, you know, if you can find a space where you do get to be your authentic self free from shame and oppression, no one is obligated to stay and try to fix where they're from if where they're from is trying to kill them.
1: And, and I think Foucault, you know, he was a, a homosexual man. He would um, completely agree With that, I think a lot of his philosophy is about interrogating these um, utopian impulses to a certain degree where, you know, like he would examine spaces like that that say, you know, like a a hospital for the mentally ill and say, well, we have this so that they get the best care. Like we didn't used to take care of mentally ill people. We didn't. And uh, and now we. Like, we have a special facility dedicated to their wellness. Mm -hmm. And he, like, flips that around and says, no, what you've done is created a space that purifies the rest of society from their presence and, you know, dehumanizes them. Also, by the way, you're pathologizing people like me as mentally ill because I am attracted to men, you know? Um, You know, defining that as a mental illness. And then whoever you don't like, you can just define as you know being belonging in this uh marginalized space these heterotopic spaces that you know helped you to create the ideal society and so he really questioned like the degree to which we're creating these spaces like to him the the arc of history is is uh becoming more and more secret less and less open it's kind of like what we were talking about with the family before how we used to live in very open communities where like um You know, maybe there wasn't uh, nuclear families and marriage and things like that. And over time, everything has become more and more private, more and more secret. Um, The same thing with like governments and things like that. And so like as we all have less access to um, knowledge about each other, it's easier to become like to do sinister shit, basically, um, and, and oppress each other. Because of that. And so like the creation of these side spaces, for example, like on the Internet of like white supremacist spaces. Right. It allows them to like plan to do nefarious stuff because they have like their own little space to do it. At the same time, those spaces allow people who like like you said, are usually like marginalized or maybe it's like abused kids or something. They can build up a found family for themselves in a healthy community that is like emotionally supportive and stuff uh, and help themselves. And so like these spaces don't have to be toxic. It's just that Foucault is uh, skeptical about their utopian gloss that's given to them of like, we did this to help you.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So the other episode that I really wanted to talk with you about is the one about the idea of the suburbs as a utopia. And it kind of uses two contrasting Pennsylvania suburbs, Levittown and Concord Park. This is one of my favorite episodes because it was just like a lot of really interesting history that I didn't know and that I think is super relevant to a lot of the conversations that are happening around like race, and, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion in America today. You know, suburbs started out as a utopian vision in general, for the most part, was like only available to white people, particularly places like Lovett Town had covenants where Black people weren't allowed to buy houses there. And then Concord Park was a very interesting and like different take on suburbs as utopia they were specifically trying to build an integrated suburb and they used um, a quota system in order to ensure that the neighborhood was like 55 percent white and 45 percent black i mean they wanted to show that integration could work basically but in order to make it work they did have to enact this like very stringent quota because more black people wanted to live in the integrated neighborhood than white
1: people did because they weren't allowed to live anywhere else
0: well yeah (laughs) yeah obviously it's just that
1: they wanted to buy houses it didn't matter
0: they wanted to buy houses yeah and so this is like the suburbs were like where the new available housing was through these uneven rules the Black people who did manage to buy into Concord Park had higher incomes compared to the white people who lived there. You know, it's like, in order for a Black person to make it, they have to be twice as good as a white person in the same situation. Which is, like, absolutely true, but also it ended up being, like, a really idealistic, wonderful utopia for, you know, a few decades, a moment in time to, like, talk to some of the people who grew up there. The people who lived there had so much pride in the project that they were a part of. Yeah. That like that feeling of having a common purpose and like being really tied together made them much more of a community.
1: Yeah, because they were building more than like the equity value of their homes, right? It was Mm -hmm. like an intentional social project to dismantle racism or like test the racist ideologies of, of their time.
0: And that's, like, one of the things that I think is really interesting, the idea of, like, utopia doesn't exist, all utopias fail in some way. Like, the Concord Park experiment, I think it failed in the sense that it was meant to be a model that could then be, like, exported and replicated all across the country. And that Mm -hmm. never happened, right? Like, he tried to do another one in Illinois and got completely stymied. But... You know, listening to the people who grew up in that neighborhood, it doesn't sound like it was a failure to them for all of those kids. Like, I think it was a successful utopia in a lot of ways.
1: I love that episode for the like all the same reasons that you're talking about. And like Morris Milgram, the guy who came up with Concord Park, is really interesting. And it's like such a perfect snapshot of like the whole thing, because he's like very idealistic But he's very committed to like getting it done. Mm -hmm. And so like there's just all these little incremental compromises that are made along the way to realizing the project that by the time the project is happening, you know, to get capitalist investors and banks on board, that's why there had to be more white people than black people. Mm -hmm. He's already like folded in the racism that he's trying to dismantle. But it's like the only way to do it Mm -hmm. with the system that's in place. And so you can't have your like perfect idealism and be an activist. It's just you can't. But at the same time, like how much are you undermining your own project to do it? And like you said, he didn't want the standards to be so impossibly high for black people. But they had to be to satisfy the white bankers Mm -hmm. who were funding the project. It's not like he was independently wealthy and could just do this. And he, like you said, he wanted it to be reproducible. The thing that I think is the craziest about that story is part of the reason why it doesn't get reproduced is because the national law changes.
0: Oh, yeah, it made the quotas illegal.
1: Exactly, which on its face sounds good, right? Because it's like we got rid of um, racist covenants that say you can't move here if you're black. But actually what this does is like to get rid of things like Milgram's Project, mm-hmm. which would require that black people move in and have quotas for integration, but also <clears throat> so that the economy of building new houses and stuff like that can extend ever onward as white flight takes a grip on the country in the late 60s. yeah, uh, and, and racial tensions are also escalating you know, concurrently with that. And so like, it's really like an economic project and not like a, but it's under the guise of being this kind of utopian idealism of, uh, we're one nation, one melting pot, one people, uh, Mm -hmm. no matter what our color is, but it's like, no, we're just, (laughs) it's very racist and we want to concentrate wealth with white people. And it it helps to, you know, reframe your understanding of things like what happened in the housing crisis of 2008 and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, it's just it grew out directly of that whole way of thinking of like building wealth and, you know, that your home is there to build wealth for you and who gets to build wealth and who doesn't and how and, you know, what are the requirements to get in and how those are different for different people and stuff. It's like it's simultaneously during that entire time, there's a concentration of wealth that's happening amongst the whitest and richest people Where, like, you know, the people who have more than 40% or 50% of uh, the total resources in this country are like eight or nine people, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then all the rest of us get to share the rest of the 60%. And those people are all white. So it's a utopia for them. It's, it's pretty awesome. That we get to be part of this utopia and do work for them. I love it. I love it so much.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that is like, if there are two phrases that I think really sum up this podcast and like its message, right? The first one is utopia does not exist. And then the second one is that question, utopia for whom?
1: I really love this season of a, a podcast about. Utopia. Um, I wanted to share it with you. I thought right away when I was listening to it that you would really like it. And so I just highly recommend it to our audience. Um, It's very listenable. You don't have to be interested in any of the particular topics. I think they'll pull you in. Uh, It's just really well made. I can't say enough good things about Avery Truffleman as like a host and narrator She has, like, a really interesting voice, a very engaging – she's, like, a pro. She's, like, a radio person, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm, like, like endlessly loyal to her. (laughs) No, like, uh, you know, this is amateur hour compared to what she's doing. So I I think she's fabulous, and everybody should give the podcast a try.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It's just, like, captivating right away and covers a lot of really interesting stories – And covers the idea of, like, how do we want to be, how should we grapple with the past and future? What are different things that we can aspire to? It, like, it captures all of that in a really interesting way. So our plan is to start putting out episodes of How the Ground Storycast pretty regularly, again, um, starting with this one. Uh, So join us next month. Uh, We're going to do an episode on Nanette, the Netflix comedy special slash performance by uh, Hannah Gadsby. It's really an amazing show. Um, It was pretty popular. um, And in the zeitgeist when it first... Zeitgeist? I don't even know how to say that. It's one of those (laughs) words I only ever read. Um, When it first came out, um, there are lots of people writing about it and how just like incredible and like really kind of revolutionizing the form of what a stand-up comedy special could be. I didn't really have, I guess, like the energy or time to engage with it at the time, but it's it's been on my like to-do list ever since then. Um and I'm so glad that I finally got around to watching it and I can't wait to talk about it with you.
1: Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. So um we'll save that Say that discussion for next month, but I'm excited to get to it.
0: Okay, um, well don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you like what we do I'm Anya and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal, that's Strangely then L-I-T-E-R-L
1: I'm Alan and you can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast or visit our website at HGStoryCast.com
0: if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.